Earlier this month, an incident at Stanford Law School went viral after a group of students shouted down a guest speaker, a federal appeals court judge, whose views they opposed. When a university administrator arrived to defuse the conflict, she seemingly endorsed the hecklers. Now, we call this episode Heckler's Veto at Stanford Law School because an important part of the story here, which we want to talk about, is the free speech question uh, implied, implicated here. But there's more to this story that is worth talking about, and that is going to be our topic today. Welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Ilan Jerno. I'm joined today by Ankar Gatte. Welcome, Ankar. Hi, Ilan. Good to be here. So let's talk a bit about why this is a significant event, why we want to talk about it uh, generally, and so, and then we can dive into some of the details to refresh people's context, or if they're not aware of it, to give them the fuller picture. So, Uncle, why did this catch your attention? What what did you take here as important? One is that Stanford is one of the best law schools in the country. I've seen it that it's ranked number two. I think it's safe to say it's top five law schools in the country. And this is something that, oh, so that's one. And the speaker is a judge of the Fifth Circuit. He's not some fringe figure that you can wonder, well, why is he, this person even on campus? What are their credentials? And so, This is a sitting judge coming to a law school and his topic was to speak about um, inconsistencies in uh, decisions at the circuit level that the Supreme Court seems like it will have to deal with. And it's partly like they think the Supreme Court has not given enough clarity or guidance. And that's part of why you're getting inconsistent, inconsistent rulings. So uh, a, a law student trying to understand U.S. law and the state of U.S. law, that they don't want to listen to a judge who's going to talk about his perspective on the current state of the law and some of the cases that his court is dealing with and decisions rendered, that that should be startling, I think. And again, this is not some third-rate law school. This is one of the top law schools in the country, and the students there don't want to hear about the state of U.S. law or want to shout down a speaker so he's not able to, to present. So, so just that was enough. And I think it, this is part of why this has got a lot of attention, a lot of coverage. And I think that's one of the main reasons. It's not the only reason, but it's, it's that just enough. That's enough to make it worthy of discussion. Yeah, just to flesh out a bit, some of the other aspects that I, I was found significant. So you mentioned he's a, he's a federal court judge. The incident got so heated that he was escorted out by federal marshals and apparently he didn't summon them. They were, they were given a tip off and I don't know if it really would have come to blows, but you, you have to think a federal judge has to be escorted from a Stanford law school class because the students are so disruptive. But I think the other part of this that we should talk about because we want to get into the details of it, part of what made this incident go viral is the video that came that surfaced of an associate dean at Stanford Law School. Her name is Tyrian Steinbach. And she was at, in the room and uh, answered the request to have an, a, a, an administrator from the university come and de-escalate or defuse the, the conflict uh, that arose. Uh, and what comes out in this video, which we'll show clips of, 
is I don't think it's I don't think it's right to think of what she's doing as de-escalating. I mean, maybe in her mind, and she wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal countering the op-ed that the judge wrote in the Wall Street Journal explaining his experience. In her mind, she was doing that. But I, I think when you listen to the video, and, and we'll play clips of it in a moment, there's something more going on here. And the other, the other facet of this, which I think is maybe a big topic for us to, to explore today, is that she's an associate dean for DEI, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that, that's a significant part of this story. And I think we want to get into that. So uh, as I said, I think we should watch the video from her. And I think the other part of the story, just to set up at the outset, some of the, the bigger features of this, part of what made this remarkable, in my view, was the university's response. So we want to get to that as well. So the, there's, a, there's a whole timeline and we'll flesh that out. But part of it is the university issued a, an apology to the judge a couple of days after the incident. And then subsequent to that, there was a longer statement, which we'll talk about as well, from the dean of the law school, which I, I think has really good elements to it, and it's worth uh, getting into that. Why don't we talk a bit about just a few more of the details of what happened just in the sequence of the event? So I think there was concern before he came on campus that there would be disruption, so that there's student groups were getting geared up to oppose him. And I think there was uh, flyers posted in advance with the headshots or the, the photographs of the members of the student group, the Federalist Society on campus that had invited the judge and was sponsoring the event. And at one of these posters that I've seen uh, online was an attempt to shame them into having invited him to campus. And I think at the same time, intimidate them into, rec into the understanding that we know what you look like, we know who you are, and we're going to make your life difficult. I think that's part of the message of a poster like that. It's, it's sort of like, it's, it's not quite a wanted poster, but it has echoes of that. Uh, and then I think the other thing to, to say here is that you, just before we started the, the, the live stream, we, you were telling me about the sequence that there was a statement from the university I think it was in advance of the event about what the rules are supposed to be for student protesters and what the policy is. And then there was a statement subsequent to that, given what unfolded in the room. So there's a lot of um, back and forth here. We'll try to condense the essentials for you all. Do you want to give us a flavor of what that was, Ankar? Yeah, I'll just put it the way I hold the essential steps in this uh, and from the perspective of what we're going to talk about is, yeah, so as you were saying, he's invited, he's invited by the FedSoc, Federalist Society chapter at Stanford Law. So he has an invitation from some of the law students at Stanford. There's indication that there's going to be protests of this. And as you say, that there's posters in advance. And so, so the university, the university says, or the law school of the university that they advise students who announced that they plan to protest of what the university's policies are, what's permissible in regard to protest and what is not, what is impermissible in regard to protest. So the students in advance were told or reminded of what the policies are. Then the event takes place and the students are disrupting it enough that the judge, he came with prepared remarks and the topic is what we said about, it's talking about sort of inconsistencies at the circuit level in decisions 
and that this is part of what the Supreme Court's job is to look at. There's inconsistencies and provide clarity when cases come up to it of, of how the, what it expects from the lower courts. So that it, he had prepared remarks on that topic that he was unable to give because there was so much disruption, heckling and noise from the students. And then 10, oh, and so it's also relevant that, so this uh, Associate Dean Steinbach was there, but apparently more administrators than just her were present. And that's again, indication that they had reason to think that this, there might be disruption. So it's important to carry through what our actual policies are. We've told students what they are and now we have to execute at the event. And what actually happens is that Associate Dean Steinbeck about, I think 10 minutes into a, the event, goes up and delivers prepared remarks of her own. And it's as, and this is what we'll play, but it's, it's chastising a sitting judge basically on what his views are and what he's supposedly going to say. They don't let him say what he has to say, but chastise him in advance for his views and positions. And that, I think that's the element that is most significant here. It's a window into DEI on campus. And as you said, I think the, so, okay, so the, the, those are, so it's disruption. It's, he's never able to give his prepared remarks. He's able to speak. They go to a Q&A that's very heated, but it's after he's been lectured by the associate dean of Stanford about, you know, maybe you should change your views because they're really bad. Um, so it, you can understand why it's a heated Q&A. And then he leaves, I think, 35 minutes or something early from the event. So he was, the Fed sock and the judge were effectively prevented from holding the event that they had planned for. Um, the, the dean of the law school, Dean Martinez, then sent an email that has, has now been published. It's unclear if it's an email just to the law school students or the students and the faculty, so the whole sort of community at the law school, saying that what happened was not consistent with the university's policies and this is a problem and we have to, we're gonna look into this and we're gonna have to do something about this. But as you said, the, the video went viral. So this, it was becoming more than just an internal issue of that our policies were not followed and we need to address this. So the two days later, there's a formal apology that's made public. I don't know actually if it's made public by Stanford or by some other people, but it's made, it becomes public knowledge that they sent a letter of apology to the judge saying our procedures weren't followed. You were not able to speak. You should have been able to speak. This event was disrupted. It should not have been disrupted. Um, and then there was pushback from many people, including students at the law school, that this apology should not have been issued. And then you get how many days later of that? Uh, it's 11 days later, I think, of, from that apology, a much longer piece from the dean of the law school, Dean Martinez, about how to think about this, what the steps going forward will be. Um, and that that is interesting because it is among the best things you'll see, I think, from a university in regard to this. But it's also interesting from the perspective of how DEI is infecting even this, one of the better 
things that you'll see in response to this this kind of disruption. So th that's how I think of the, the, the basic sequence of events and part of what we want to talk about. I want to add one detail to this, which leapt out at me when I read about it. So I think it's a couple of days after the, uh, the incident with the judge, Dean Martinez teaches a class at the law school. So she, she's both an administrator and a faculty member, uh, teaching faculty member. And so what happens is there is a group of students. One of the reports is 50 out of 60 in the law school uh, first year. So a significant number of the students post on the whiteboard or the chalkboard in her lecture room uh, flyers saying that they what they did was counter speech and that it's legitimate. And so they're pushing back on her uh, statement that what happened in, at the event was contrary to policy. And on top of this, this is the thing that really struck me as hooliganism, as a kind of anti-intellectual hooliganism that has no place in, it's just, it's, it's disgraceful for a law school to have this happen, I think. So a number of the students line the corridor where the, the Dean Martinez was going in and out of her classroom wearing uh, masks, as it was described, and wearing black in general, as a way to convey their dissatisfaction with her. And I, I took this to be a, a kind of public shaming. It's like they created a human corridor for her to enter and exit the building. And apparently one third of the law school student population was involved in this. So there's clearly a view among many of the students that what happened in that classroom was appropriate, what they, they, they are disagree with the, with the dean. And this is, as you said, that she had a later longer statement, which we'll come to, but that's before that statement has come out. So this is primarily in response to her statement and her uh, to the, the law school community and the apology in particular that they objected to. I think we should talk, we should listen now to uh, the Associate Dean Tyreen Steinbach. So let's play the first clip. So what, this is a nine minute clip that you can find online. We're not gonna play the whole thing. We just selected a few uh, excerpts. It's a big portion of the total, but if you wanna see the whole thing, go and listen to that. There's also, you can also find, and we're not gonna play it. There's apparently another source with audio of the whole event, which you can use to form your own view, but it's very hard to, uh, piece it together. I've read a transcript of the whole audio and you, I've watched this clip numerous times. The goal in showing excerpts is not to try to present her in, a, in an unfavorable light, it's just to signal, is to single out a few elements of what she says. So uh, I just want to make clear that we're not presenting this in a, we're not trying to present her in a bad light. This is just what happened uh, and uh, the things that are particularly significant for us to talk about. So let's play the first clip for, from this. I have to write something down because I'm so uncomfortable up here. Um, and I don't say that for sympathy. I just say I'm deeply, deeply uncomfortable. Um, I'm uncomfortable because this event is tearing at the fabric of this community that I care about and I'm here to support. And I don't know, and I have to ask myself, and I'm not a cynic to ask this, is the juice worth the squeeze? Is this worth it? It is an aesthetic. But for many people in this law school who work here, who study here, and who live here, your advocacy, your opinions from the bench land as absolute disenfranchisement of their rights and does land. Let me please. 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 
Thank you. And it impacts directly their people, humans, their families, and their communities. And I'm uncomfortable, and it's uncomfortable to say this to you as a person. It's uncomfortable to say that for many people here, your work has caused harm, has caused, has caused harm. And I know that must be uncomfortable to hear. I know that must be. Let me please finish. And I want to give you space to finish your remarks too, Judge Duncan. I'm also uncomfortable because Many of the people in the room here I've come to care for. Um, and at, in my role at this university, my job is to create a space of belonging for all people in this institution. And that is hard and messy and not easy and the answers are not black or white or right or wrong. This is actually part of the creation of belonging. And it doesn't feel comfortable and it doesn't always feel safe, but there are always places of safety and there is always an intention from this administration to make sure you all can be in a place where you feel fully you can be here, learn, grow into the amazing advocates and lawyers and leaders that you're going to be. I'm also uncomfortable because it is my job to say you are invited into this space. You are absolutely welcome in this space in this space that people learn and again live. I really do wholeheartedly welcome you because me and many people in this administration do absolutely believe in free speech. Well, there's a lot in that clip we just played and a few others we want to share as well. So one thing that's significant is she came with prepared remarks. You mentioned that I think just a few minutes ago, but I think that's significant. She. Why did she prepare remarks? Why and how did she know what the remarks should include given what this event was about? So there, there was some, uh, something significant about that premeditation on her part. And the other thing I, I wanted to uh, flag here, was you, you, we were talking about this just a few minutes before we went live, which is notice that when she is speaking and he's objecting and he's, you can see he's frustrated, he's the one uh, on the right uh, in, in the suit up front. And, the students are, are snapping their fingers in support when she's speaking. And then when he objects, they scream at him to tell him not to interrupt her. He's the speaker, he's the invited guest. This is exactly the inversion. And her role is not to be the one lecturing. Her role is to be the one to enable him to come and, and fulfill the, the invitation that he was issued. Uh, what, what are some of your re reactions to this? You said before playing this clip, I think this is important. The, the, the issue is not to try to shame this person. And Stanford has put this, the, this associate Dean Steinbeck on leave, um, which I think actually is appropriate for what, given what their policies are and that they inform people before the event, these are the policies. She's so clearly not following their policies. So that, that we should not paint Stanford as they, this is what they wanted to happen. I don't think that's the case. But I do think this is representative of the DEI mentality that is embedded in universities. So I think part of what's significant about this, and it's prepared remarks, so it's thought out beforehand. It's not just off the cuff. This is how they view the situation. And this kind of what disagreement looks like um, what inclusion looks like. Like, like? Do you think the judge feels included? First, I'm going to lecture you for why you're a moron. 
And then I want to hear what you have to say. So then we were going to listen to what you have to say. But first, I have to tell you how stupid you are and how much you've affected all the students and so on. And that, that's not debatable. Like, this is just fact that I want to tell you about. And then we can hear your views and, and as we'll play. But, like, is there really anything to your views? It's this, this condescending, sanctimonious. In the end, I think of this as a religious mentality. Like, our faith is unquestionable. Yeah, maybe we'll listen to what you have to say. We all know in advance it, there's nothing to it and so on because it contradicts our faith. And I think that it's, as I said, it's prepared remarks. There's nothing out of the ordinary. What's out of the ordinary, it's captured on camera and we're seeing it and we're seeing it sort of very explicitly. But this is the mentality and that tells you... It, tells you something I think deep about the mentality but also very disturbing about the mentality and for me that like this is what's so significant about the event is you're just seeing she just and I really do think she thinks she's doing her job that like this is if I'm to stand up for DEI this is what it looks like and unfortunately I think this is what it looks like and it's part of what is so pernicious about DEI. So you you said that you take this to be a kind of religious mentality. Let me challenge that a bit because what many people will hear when they, if you say religious mentality, what many people will hear is, or what they think of is someone going to confession, someone bowing, the, the Trinity is a real thing. I can get my head around something that doesn't make any sense to a rational person. The arguments for God don't add up, but I still believe. But you're saying, and, and there's no element of, um, what she represents is something that most people would recognize as secular. It's about recognizing people's differences. It's about making them feel welcomed on campus and so forth. So maybe, so let me put that challenge to you. Tell us, tell me more about how you think about this mentality and why, why you think that's the right characterization. Yeah. As we, as we play more clips, one can keep, look at it from this perspective. I think she's articulating a faith. And so that's the religious aspect. It's a faith that we've subscribed to and the students have subscribed to. You don't share this faith. You're an outsider who's disrupting our perceived. We find it threatening. We need safe spaces to go to. And so that's, again, that, that one's seen that in religion. And when religions encounter other viewpoints, including just other religions, it's like you're saying something very different than one and in I find that very disturbing. And, and part of what's disturbing is you're then asked to justify, give arguments for your position, not just assert your position. And that is, that's what they're not interested in. They're not interested even in having a debate. It's I'm going to lecture to you what the truth is. And then, okay, we'll wait, let you go. And if you just, just think of it from the, um, the, in the, the, taking seriously the inclusion aspect of diversity, equity, inclusion. We can, we'll come back to what is meant, and it comes up in the 10-page Stanford Law response of the, of the dean, the, the, the last detailed response. Of, of she brings this up a little bit. But it's, like, does the judge feel included here? And more, um, more significant, do the other Stanford law students, 
the people who are members of the Fed sock or just wanted to come and hear this judge and were interested in hearing. Do they feel included, respected, and so on? That's a group of students with some of the administration can come and disrupt the event so the judge can't speak. They're going to lecture to it. And then we might permit you to speak after that. And if you're, if you really are taking inclusion seriously, it's not code for something like a certain viewpoint that we're trying to just inculcate in everybody. Um, then it was, I think it's obvious the answer is no, you would have some concern for these students and the fact that they organize this event, they want to hear this content, and they're not able to, and they feel like they're being persecuted. And when you learn a little more widely of some Betchsoft chapters on universities, there is that element. They're not that welcome. And so, and, but there's not any concern for those students. And that tells you it's, there's, a, there's a kind of inculcation here, not a genuine, oh, we're trying to make everybody feel included. And because you would have a very different reaction of what was going on. And that's not the reaction at all that she's conveying, that she's concerned for the FedSoc students. Well, let's go to the next clip. I think there's, we want to put more of her voice on record. We believe that it is necessary. We believe that the way to address speech that feels abhorrent, that feels harmful, that literally denies the humanity of people, that one way to do that is with more speech and not less, and not to shut you down or censor you or censor the student group that invited you here. That is hard, that is uncomfortable, and that is a policy and a principle that I think is worthy of defending even in this time, even in this time. And again, I still ask, is the juice worth the squeeze? What does that mean? I, I mean, is obvious. it worth the pain that this causes and the division that this causes? Do you have something so incredible, important to say about Twitter and guns and COVID that that is worth this impact on the division of these people who have sat next to each other for years? Is the juice juice worth the squeeze? That comes up a number of times in this. I want to I want to talk about that. I react to this, and I and I, and I think this goes to the way you characterize DEI as a kind of belief system that's not something defended. Defended, it's something felt, something faith based. And I noticed that it comes up a lot in her characterizations of what is what she's objecting to is that people feel erased people feel threatened people feel that his his decisions land as as disenfranchisement that's not the same thing as in fact causing people actual harm it's there, there's a sense in which it might be you could make a case that some of his decisions are wrong and you might have a view that it's bad policy i haven't read a lot of his decisions i, I started reading one of them i don't know that that's the the, the position she's taking, but it's more about the subjective readout from her and from the students and from the community that she's she thinks of herself as representing. And that's part of what I find really worrisome here. It's if I if I just react to something negatively, that's in that has the same standing as you violated my rights. I think that that's sort of what is being put together here. And there's no distinction between those two. And it's, it's certainly a problem if you feel 
threatened by something and that's a threat and that's a problem or if you are uncomfortable with something i recognize that that happens i've been to talks i've given talks where most of the audience are uncomfortable and they're heckling me and i've been disrupted not like this and they but I, i've definitely experienced that and i've been in talks where i've been uncomfortable but i think part of what's happening in her statement is there's a, a deliberate blurring between what in fact is a problem with your view versus i feel bad i don't like it it's it's against what I believe. And I, it's my emotional readout that's most significant here. And I, and I think that's, when you tie that to her role at a law school, it's not, the, the, the outcome of a law school is people trained to, to advocate in the law, who have a knowledge of the law, who can go gain more knowledge and advocate and, and, and defend people and, and uh, uh, succeed in, uh, ensuring that the law is properly executed. And what this, what, part of what I find pernicious in this is that it, it's, it's the pollution of that with a, a deep subjectivism. Uh, so if, imagine some of these law students showing up in front of a judge in five years time, having graduated and gotten through the bar. Who would take them seriously if what they're arguing is, my, my client feels uncomfortable with this situation? That, that's not an argument that that's a readout that I mean, it's relevant, but it's not an argument. Yeah, that's part of what is shocking that, that she's catering to these people. Part of the religious mentality, I think of the of a faith based mentality as inherently hypocritical. Because a faith based mentality, if you really understood it and took it seriously, it will be, I've got no arguments for my position. And if someone else has another position that's very different from mine, and they have no arguments, it has the same standing as mine, like everything's on a par. If you let faith in, then every view is as good as every other view. There's nothing to criticize about somebody's view because you don't have arguments. So why are you criticizing that his arguments are bad? Or so you, you don't, you're not even pretending to have arguments. Right? And so there's something inherently hypocritical to, if you think, oh yeah, well, Catholicism's the one truth. Muslims get everything wrong and Hindus get it. Yeah, but they have exactly the same basis as you do for your views, which is no arguments. Um, so it, you have to privilege one over the other for no reason. And with this kind of question, is the juice worth the squeeze? Does she ask it about herself? She's insulting the judge. She's insulting the Fed sock that, that you would want to have an event like this and so on. Um, how come their feelings don't count? What, what happens if they're feeling really bad? And what, what do they need a safe space? Are you preparing some kind of space that they can go to. And as you'll see, they prepare space that these, oh, if you need to leave, if you find this so um, um, upsetting that you can't even listen to a sitting court, you can leave and we have things for you. Is there any consideration for the people who came and wanted to hear the judge that now aren't they feeling intimidated and just um, um, upset that their event's not happening and there's no, she doesn't ask, well, yeah, it's what I'm, I'm do, giving prepared remarks. Is the um, juice worth the squeeze? Yeah, it so obviously is because I'm about DEI. That's the, and it's like, this is my faith. Well, how can you ask that kind of question about it? And that 
tells you, again, it, it's that part of it that you're dealing with a very religious mentality that can't ask the kind of questions that they'll ask about someone else. They can't ask it about themselves. Um, and that you're, you're not dealing with someone, you're not dealing with reason. If it's that I subject you to certain criteria, I'm exempt from those criteria. That's a faith-based mind, not a rational mind. Just one other inconsistency that I wanted to draw attention to here. So the, the clip we just played starts with her affirming that we believe in freedom of speech. We're not here to silence you. The administration believes in freedom of speech. She, she goes through this, which I regard as ritualistic because I don't, I can't believe that she understands what freedom of speech is or that she truly believes it. If at the same time, she's holding as the criterion is the juice worth the squeeze which which i take to mean well if it hurts people's feelings you shouldn't say it or if it hurts my feelings you shouldn't say it. that's not what it means to think about freedom of speech as a principle the point of freedom of speech is precisely for the kinds of things that are going to be offensive there are dissenting from conventional thinking and they might be wrong or they might be right but that's not the central question the central question is should you be free to speak? Should you be able to hold views and express them regardless of what other people think, regardless of what government thinks, regardless of, now that's in the widest context. Now there's a special context on campus and there's administrative policies and so on, but just to bracket that for a minute, if you think of freedom of speech as a principle, if you really believe in it, you don't ask the question, is the juice worth the squeeze? If it's, if it's speech that someone is entitled to articulate, it doesn't matter how many people are offended by it. In fact, the whole point, and this is a wider point I wanted to, hopefully we can get more into this, but there is a view of the university that, or it was much more an issue maybe five years ago, but I think it hasn't gone away. It's sort of in the background, but the university should not be challenging students. We have to have trigger warnings and we need to have students be aware that this might be offending to them. And, I find that really bizarre because what would what is the point of the university if it's not going to expand your your field of view and and give you challenges to the things you already believe and offer you different ways of looking at the world and so it's inherent in education that if you're not being challenged in meaningful ways how how are you actually going to grow and how are you going to improve your arguments if you don't take up arguments of other people and, and see, well, can I answer this? Is there really a, a, can I defend my view? So I think that there's so many ways in which university education should be challenging and it should be upsetting. Uh, um, I mean, this goes back to what the, the ancient Greek philosophers did. I mean, this is what Socrates was, people got upset with him for. It's like he challenged people's assumptions and he, he showed them they, they in many cases they couldn't answer his questions about what some of the principles of life are and the ones that they claim to, to believe in. And I think that's that should be in, should be recognized as inherent in education. That you, knowledge isn't going to grow if people stick to orthodoxies. And that's that's the opposite of what you need. So this whole idea that if we're going to upset a bunch of people, then we don't we don't think that's worth the squeeze. That, that, and, and I find finally just one other aspect of this really aggravating is that the, the, hi, the hiding behind this metaphor, and then he, he, and I think we might see it in the next clip, the judge keeps asking him, what does that mean? What does this metaphor mean? And then she has to 
finally put it in non-metaphorical language, but that's, it's revealing when you put it in non-metaphorical language, it, it's not as, uh, it, it's really discreditable. It's like, well, if you say things that upset people, you shouldn't say them. I mean, <laughs> a big part of our job is to tell people things they haven't heard and things that are going to scandalize them because we think they, their views are wrong and it's important to challenge uh, conventional thinking. This is part of what, what Ayn Rand's career was. She had a radical new view of the world and she told people about it. And she was adamant that you have to be able to say that kind of thing. Uh, okay, so I, there's more to say about her clips, but should we move on to the next one? Or did you want to add to this? Uh, no, let's move on. Yeah, let's, let's go to the next clip. why people feel like the harm is so great that we might need to reconsider those policies. And luckily, they're in a school where they can learn the advocacy skills to advocate for those changes. I hope that you have something to share with us that we can learn from. I hope you can learn, too, while you're in this learning institution. I hope you can look to the spectacle of the, and the noise to the people holding these signs. A couple of things here I, I wanted to talk about. One is the first thing she says in this clip is to question the policy that she's there to enforce. And, that, and I think that comes through. Uh, she's, she raises it as a suggestion. Maybe we need to rethink our policy if this is the sort of thing that it allows. And that, I think that goes to your earlier point about she's clearly not aligned with what the university states as its policy in this context. And this is one more piece of evidence that she's there as a representative of the protesters, not a representative of the faculty or of the administration of the school. And, and maybe in her mind, those things are blended, but that, that's significant. I think the, the other thing I wanted to say in reaction to this particular clip um, is when she turns to him and says things you should learn about this experience. And I've, I mean, I've given talks and I, I find every talk I give, I learn a lot more than I expect, but that's about the contents, about engaging with people and the knowledge I gain from the questions and so forth. So there's certainly things you can learn as a speaker from every audience and you should be. I mean, that, it would be strange if you didn't. I don't think that's what she means. I think what she means is question your own beliefs because you're wrong and listen to these human beings in this room because they're the ones in the right and you need to, to atone for what you are actually advocating or what I think you're advocating. The, the learning here that she's suggesting is humble yourself because you're completely wrong. You're, you're, you're not part of what uh, these young people who are not yet lawyers know more than you do about these issues. And, and I, I find that scandalizing that she would have this kind of attitude to a judge. And I don't, this is not, and I should have said this earlier, none of this should be taken as we have a favorable view of the judge. I, I don't, actually don't know a lot about him. I don't think it's really relevant what you think of his views. It, the fact that he's a judge is, is relevant that that office has a certain standing in the same way that I have respect for the office of the president, regardless of the current occupant or the previous occupants and so forth. I think there's something to be said about that kind of institutional respect that a judge should, should have. And this is an administrator speaking to him in a way that I, I wouldn't dream of speaking to my teenage children this way. <laughs> I have much more respect for my teenage kids who are not fully formed adults 
and they make mistakes and I disagree with them all the time, I wouldn't speak to them this way. And she's speaking to him as if he's beneath the students in the room who are behaving like hooligans. And she's doing it publicly, openly. She probably didn't think it's gonna be a viral video, but nor does she think this is just behind closed doors between the two of them. It's, and this again, it's part of the, I think it, it's revealing of a mentality and it's not that there's something really bizarre about what she's doing, given that what her position is, is about promoting DEI. She thinks of this as that's what it's doing. And the idea is what you brought up about maybe we need to change our policies. That's reflective of the mentality. Again, it's what DEI requires is changing the policies at a law school. And notice what the change would mean that a sitting judge cannot come to the law school and talk about what is happening at the courts, not what his opinions are, or what the law should be. He can't even come and talk about what is actually happening um, at the level of, uh, uh, of judicial decisions. That, like, if, if we were implementing DEI, that's what we would prevent from happening. And that that's at a, she's a teen at a law school that's going to prevent students from hearing from a sitting judge about current legal, the current legal environment. And that, because it's up, it would, might be upsetting to some people and they don't agree with what some of his decisions and so on. And that, that, that this is, that this is a, I mean, it, it's, I think, putting it mildly of control of the curriculum that that's what they would to really push this agenda. That's what we need. That like that's what you're starting to see, and it's just like openly stated that this is yeah this maybe that's what it would require. Let's watch the last couple of clips here, uh, and then because I want to make sure we get time to talk about the response from the dean of the law school. So why don't we play the next two clips back to back? asking you to take care and like all guests on our campus we ask that you come with good intentions and respect and i do want to hear your remarks and i do want to say thank you for protecting the free speech that we value here of our speakers and of our protesters really grateful to be in this institution. I look out and I don't ask what is going on here. I look out and I say, I'm glad this is going on here. Okay, so the, the very last statement I think is important as well as some of what came before it, which is if you've come to defuse a situation like this, you can't also tell people who are disrupting that you're proud of what they're doing. I mean, that's a, exactly contrary to what her role in this context should have been. And I think this is uh, more to the theme that she, I, 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 what she's there to do is to enforce a certain kind of view, not to diffuse the situation, not to uh, ensure that the, the student club has an opportunity to have an undisrupted event. And the other uh, part of this, which I found uh, really disturbing is the very beginning of the clip or the, uh, where she turns to him and says, we expect people to come with good intentions. We, that's what we ask of you. And she's 
you can hear it in her voice. She's, she's very upset. There's some strong emotions going on on her part. And I take that to be, she doesn't think he came with good intentions and she feels really threatened and she's, she's reflective of the, I take her to be an avatar of the students in the room. I, I think she's reacting in, in a way similar, though more mature than the students. And I think we said this briefly in passing at the beginning, but the, the actual title of his talk is relevant here. And I, and I anticipate that what he was going to say based on this title is not at all what she thinks he was going to say. So the title of his talk is The Fifth Circuit in Conversation with the Supreme Court, colon, COVID, Guns, and Twitter. And what I understood to be the goal of his talk is to talk about the ways in which the this, the Fifth Circuit connects to the Supreme Court, where there are gaps. So there, the way I've heard it characterized, this is a kind of talk for people interested in constitutional law, and it's a it's a kind of nerdy topic. This isn't. There's no reason to expect him to be coming in and making statements about his own views or even the views that are you could glean from some of his decisions about the kind of issues that the students are upset about, which is he. Uh, they take him to be an opponent of same-sex marriage. They take him to be an opponent of trans rights. They take him to be an opponent of all manner of things. And he might well be all those things. And you might be able to, to convince me that that's what comes out of his decisions. That's not what he came to speak about. And so it's the fact that he holds these views independent of what his talk was about makes him persona non grata. So we don't want to hear what you have to say because you have these views on other topics. You're, you're so far beyond the pale. And that, that's a really strange view that a judge who is making decisions, you don't want to hear what he has to say on this, this kind of question about the interface between the Supreme Court and lower courts, precisely because you heard or secondhand, I don't know how many of them actually read his decisions. You have been told that he's an enemy of the kind of things that you care about. And that's the other thing to, just to draw out that thread. How many of the students protesting have actually read his decisions, have actually formed a view that he actually holds these views, he's pernicious to the things they care about, versus somebody told them, or he has a reputation, or they've heard this from a news report, and one doesn't have to be a sophisticated reader of the news to know that the way journalism works is a lot of things get distorted even when there isn't a desire to distort them, it's just even just through sloppiness. Because just that alone should make you suspicious about how the students are processing this. Now, if you told me, yes, every single one of the protesters read everything, has a view, that would be different. But I don't think that's what happened. And I don't think that's really the way they're operating here. Yeah, you certainly don't get the sense from the event. And then that, uh, if you, one looks at some of the questions that it is, this is detailed legal analysis of his decisions and that's what they're objecting to. Um, and it, it's, I mean, this is part of what law school should be doing as well. Even if you don't like the outcome of some decision, part of what you have to be thinking about is, yeah, but is this what the law requires? And then if you think there's something wrong with the outcome, it's, the laws have to be changed. Sometimes you can think the law is misapplied or something, but you, sometimes it will be the laws applied correctly 
the problem is with the laws and that that's addressed through the legislative branch of government. It's addressed for changing the laws. And it's just there, it's an, the atmosphere is unsophisticated. And that's part of what is so galling about, as you said, of telling the, the, the associate dean telling him, I hope you learn from the students. It's true what you said. I agree with it completely as a teacher. You learn from students, you learn from their questions, you learn from their comments. But when students are behaving like this, to single them out and say, I hope you learn from them, that is so insulting. It's insulting to anybody. And to a judge who's supposed to be an expert in this, and these are first-year law students, to tell him that, oh, I well, I hope you learn from them when they're behaving this badly is, um, it's... Yeah, you're, it's disingenuous that what you're actually interested in is knowledge. Let's, I think we should turn to the response from Dean Jenny Martinez of Stanford Law School. So this is particularly the letter that, or a memo that she wrote that we'll put a link to the whole thing in the show notes and people can find it online as well easily. So this is a 10 page fairly uh, I mean, it includes some legal arguments, but it's not the, the essence of it. The essence of it is sort of a statement of her perspective on what happened, how to approach it, and what will go uh, on on campus following this. And just as a headline reaction to this, it's, I thought this was a really good statement compared to what I've seen other universities put out. And in particular, given the circumstances of what happened on campus, I thought this was positive statement. There's definitely things I don't agree with it uh, on, uh, but it was, it was actually a, a positive here where I, what I was worried about after hearing what happened and watching the videos, I, I was worried that Stanford would cave significantly, like fundamentally cave on this issue. And I think the, the gist of this 10 page letter is that they're not going to do that, though they're really worrisome signs in the details of what she has to say. Um, your reaction, then, should we talk about some of the details in the, the statement? Yes, I had the same reaction. And that's part of what is encouraging about this whole event and interesting that there actually is some pushback. It's not just caving to it or seeming like there's some pushback, but it's essentially just caving to the the students and this this associate dean and the perspective that is being articulated in some of which we saw in the clips that we played. It is, it defends Stanford's policies. It defends them both from the perspective that legally this is what is required of the university, of how it has to think about what views can be expressed on campus, how various uh, people with non-majority uh, views that are not shared by the majority, how they should be treated, that Stanford has a policy, which it did, and it, which it's told students about before. It, it's a policy that is reasoned, so it has both a legal aspect to it, that we're in compliance with the law, and there's some California laws that apply, even though Stanford's a, a private university, so in that sense, the First Amendment does not apply. California has some laws that make it that it does apply in certain way, even to private. And that's part of what she brings up in the letter. 
and that that's part of what informs Stanford's policy. So it's a defense of the policy and clear cut that our policies were not followed, that the initial apology that they gave to the dean was correct, that they should apologize. They're not withdrawing the apology as the student, as you had said, students were demanding of that, that this, the apology be rescinded. They're not doing that. Um, and so, so it's, it's a defense of the policy for both a legal and an attempt of a moral perspective on it to say, no, that what the students did was wrong, that the students who disrupted it, not who held up some signs or something, but the students who disrupted it to such an extent that the judge could not give his remarks so that the event could not um, happen in the way that it was planned to happen, that there's something really problematic about that. And then there's aspects of um, how that will be addressed going forward because there were calls. So just, I mean, there, this attracted national attention. So there were both calls for this apology should be rescinded and calls from the students, but more widely of people siding with the students. But also there were calls for the students should be expelled. They should be expelled from Stanford and that's not what Stanford's doing. And so there's some articulation, which I think overall makes sense of how it's, we're not expelling students or really reprimanding them in part because it's very hard to know who did what in terms of the students, but also, and I think this is a valid argument of, there were administrators in the room of Stanford and they're acting like what the students are doing is legitimate. And we saw here, I mean, the, the associate Dean Steinbeck is certainly not reprimanding any of the students and uh, not just not reprimanding is in, in effect, encouraging the students, complimenting them for what they did. So if the administration's doing that, then all of a sudden to say, oh, you students now we're expelling, expelling you. No, I mean, you indicated that what we were doing was proper. So how, why now are you expelling us? And I think that's a legitimate argument that it's the administration failed here and you can't just pin it all on the students then and pretend that the administration didn't fail. So that's part of what I like about the letter that it really, it, and it's not just this Dean because it says there were other administrators in the room and our policies were not upheld. And that's in the failure of the administration, not just the students. Yeah, I, that, that, I, I agree with that. I thought that was a, a way that, to because I think I've seen both kinds of things. I've seen universities shrug when or ignore student misbehavior when they should have punished students and then you see cases where it's it's not clear how they're going to punish them it seems arbitrary or or out of proportion so i think this was reasonable in the way she approached it and for the reasons you mentioned i wanted to highlight one thing that i thought was particularly positive not so much on the legal reasoning which is included here but sort of a wider perspective that the letter brings or the memo brings to this and She's responding to, I think, a view in the Stanford community that the students who are protesting, I think, held and, and many, perhaps many more of them on campus hold. Um, and this is the idea that there, there's, a kind of, there's a need for a kind of orthodoxy, in effect. That's not how she puts it, but I think that's the way to think about it. And what she says, and I'm going to read just a, a portion of this, she says, quote, there is temptation to a system in which people holding views perceived by some as harmful or offensive are not allowed to speak, 
to avoid giving legitimacy to their views or upsetting members of the community. But history teaches us that this is a temptation to be avoided. I can think of no circumstance in which giving those in authority the right to decide what is and is not acceptable content for speech has ended well. And just to end quote, if you think of that just more broadly, just as a political kind of perspective or historical perspective, that's true. That's, that's one of those important things to, to, to take away from thinking about the issue of freedom of speech uh, throughout human history. This is, this is a crucial step forward in human society to recognize that you should not put people uh, in power in such a way that they can prevent others from voicing their ideas. And this is, this is a crucial thing to recognize. So I was impressed by that, the inclusion of that kind of statement. Now, this, this, the, the letter puts this in a wider, it, that wider point in, an, in the context of a university, and there's definitely a, a complicated context to recognize. So as you said, the university is not a public university, but California law has certain provisions that uh, uh, impact how it has to conduct itself. But I thought as a, uh, for the audience that this is written for, which is I think not only, but primarily for the students in the Stanford community, this is an important thing for them to hear from the, from the Dean of the law school. This is a, an important, finding in history that you do not silence speech you, you need to protect it uh, so th that was one thing i wanted to talk I, I wanted to go back to your comments about the way dei has become entrenched you, you brought that up in the context of when we were listening to associate dean steinbach's comments I think there's evidence that as good as the letter is, it's it's also here. It's it's also evident in her in the thinking of Dean Martinez, whose statement is overall good and her reaction I think is reasonable and and, and uh, laudable. Um, I just want to hear how you think of that, and if there are aspects of this you want to highlight. Yes. Yeah, so it she mentions in a number of places that she thinks. Freedom of speech, and if we put it also Stanford's policies in what range of viewpoints they have on campus, and that they're encouraging a range of viewpoints, and that a law school is in part about debate, it's in part about learning the different views about the law, because these are the people you're going to encounter. You're going to, I mean, our, the U.S. legal system is a, is a confrontational legal system. So you're arguing and you're counter-arguing and you have to understand the positions of the people you're arguing against, even if they're positions you vehemently disagree with, you have to understand them. You have to be able to argue against them and you have to be able to convince a third party, in this case, judge and juries of you've got the better legal argument. There's something defective about the other side. So, and so that you're that you learn to deal with a variety of viewpoints to, and to think carefully about them, what their strengths and weaknesses are, that that's part of what a law school education is doing. And she takes then so to think of freedom of speech and diversity, equity and inclusion as these are not things pulling in a different direction. And as we saw in those clips of, from the associate dean who's focuses DEI, she thinks they might pull in different, and indeed, I think in the end, she thinks they do. 
pull in different directions. And maybe we have to revisit these policies because really should we have this kind of speaker on campus? So she's thinking of the, those as intention uh, in the DEI and Stanford's policies about debate and about allowing viewpoints that not many people disagree with, allowing this on campus. She's trying to say, no, they're compatible. And she's thinking of both diversity and inclusion is we want a wide diversity of viewpoints, so of intellectual viewpoints about the law and more broadly about sort of moral philosophical thinking about the law. And that we want to include everybody. I mean, so that what inclusion is, it's you have this wide diversity and everybody feels included. It's something like, and she thinks, well, that's part of what the our policies are about. So these are, they're not intention, they're compatible with each other. But you can see in the letter ways in which they're not compatible and that this isn't actually what DEI means. That, that is the advocates of it, of what we need is diversity, equity, and inclusion, and we need administrators and officers who are responsible for getting this much more into the university. We've got an associate dean. This is their focus. That's not what they're trying to do, that they're not trying to have a wide range of intellectually diverse viewpoints. And so there's a kind of, there's a little bit of catering to what DEI actually means while trying to simultaneously suggest it doesn't mean what it actually means. And that, um, as I think you see here, like this is someone I think really trying to push back on this. And even there, it has to be, no, it's about um, DEI and what they mean about DEI. And one, of the, one way in this, this surfaces it is the treatment of the FEDSOC and the treatment of the people protesting. So the treatment of the FEDSOC, at least there's some mention of the FEDSOC that, that their um, event was disrupted and their, put, it's put in terms of rights. You can debate that again, because it's a private um, university. So, but if you just think of it, um, their rights qua, the rights that they're supposed to have qua students at Stanford, given these are Stanford's policies, they, they should have an expectation that the policies will be carried out for us in the same way as for other groups. And if you couldn't disrupt an, other groups events like this, you can't do it like this. So that, that kind of issue of fairness. And so, it, it's, so here, apart from the letter is, this is what it says about Federalist Society. The Federalist Society has the same rights of free association that other student organizations at the law school have. Students calling for the law school administration to restrict the organization or the speakers it can bring to campus are demanding action inconsistent, not only with freedom of speech, but with rights to freedom of association that civil rights lawyers fought hard in this 20th century to secure. And then skipping a, a little bit, but same paragraph. Unless we recognize that student members of the Federalist Society and other conservatives 
have the same right to express their views free from free of coercion. We cannot live up to this commitment, nor can we claim that we are fostering an inclusive environment of all students. And this is where you can see that tell me it's we got to respect they have the same um, uh, rights here. And if we allow other campus groups to bring in speakers in the event to proceed, they should be they shouldn't be singled out to be disrupted and so on. Um, and that the part of being inclusive is we allow different viewpoints. And so on. But there's not, this is, well, they have the right to do this. It's not, we welcome and we're really glad that they do this and we're glad that they brought the judge there. There's none of that in the letter. But for the protesters, what you get, um, again, after talking about some of free speech and there is a right to dissent and to not disrupt an event, but say you don't disagree, to boo sometimes, to hold up signs, as long as you're allowing the event to proceed. Um, but then in, in the letter, it's it bears emphasizing that there's a typo, I think, that this, I think it should be, um, that is not, not as italicized, not inconsistent with principles of academic freedom for the university administration to say that our LGBTQ plus students, faculty, and staff are valued members of our community of scholars. That goes to the basic norms of pluralism that underpin our operation as a university. And then skipping a little bit, but still same paragraph. And so I say that firmly here as well, um, and defend the value and place of LGBTQ plus people in our community. Close quote. And that's going out of the way to say these are valued members of our community. And so, and I think she feels a need to do that, given the, the kind of opposition. So there's no no language like that in regard to the FedSoc, that these are valued members of community. We welcome them. We're glad that they're bringing um, opposing viewpoints to campus. And so we're glad they invited the judge. So it's a real travesty that he wasn't able to speak. It's a, no, it's, yeah, you have a right to do this. And it, and you can think if, you, if some of the associate dean was, yeah, I, I, you've got freedom of speech and we'll allow this to go. But you sure you should be doing this? It, that, and there's not a defense of the bed stock in that you're, like if you're really valuing them in the way that it goes out of the way to say about the protesters, um, because some of the protest was about LGBTQ kind of issues, and so that oh, we really value you, and so there's a kind of double standard there. It's not anything like what the associate dean has. She doesn't give any consideration to the Fed stock students, but this is not full consideration, I think, in when you see the two in just the position to each other. And that is, that's the kind of environment that DEI is creating, I think. There's an orthodoxy that has a privileged status. And here, it's the good thing is going out of its way to say, no, but there's other viewpoints, and that's part of the university and so on. But it's not welcoming in the same kind of way. And that tells you about how it's creeping into even people who are really trying to oppose this in how they look at the situation and how they look at the world.
So there's still more to say about this letter or memo, and I encourage people to go read it if they're interested to get more. I had one other thought, but I'm not sure I, I want to get into it. But do you have any final uh, remarks you want to leave us with before we wrap up? One other thing about just the the issue of DEI and it, it how it the thinking about it in the letter and the role it's playing. The dean, uh, Dean Martinez, also goes out of her way that DEI should not lead to a kind of orthodoxy that where only one view is permissible on campus or in, in the law school. Um, and it's forceful in that regard, but it's not addressing why would anyone think that that's what DEI would lead to? So if it really were about, well, we want a whole diversity of viewpoints and we include everybody, how could anybody think what, what it's going to lead to is an orthodoxy and everybody who dissents from it is going to be taboo? And yet she gets the sense that that's the environment that I'm imposing. And then if you have to be able to connect that to what the real advocates of DEI are actually after and what what you think they mean about well they want a diversity of viewpoints is not what they're after and that's why she feels like it's uh, there's something going wrong and so she has a sense like the administration acted badly here and there's something behind it but doesn't want to face that what's behind it is DEI um so it's in the letter it's at the same time, I want to set expectations clearly going forward. Our commitment to diversity, equity, and, and inclusion is not going to take the form of having the school administration announce institutional positions on a wide range of current social and political issues, make frequent institutional statements about current news events, or exclude or condemn speakers who hold views on social and political issues with whom some or even many in our community disagree. And it, there's some more of that. But it's like, why would anybody think that that's what it's going to lead to? And yet she has a sense that's what it seems to be leading to. And we're not going to go down that road. But the, the next question has to be, why is that the road that we seem to be going down? This is an interesting uh, signal about what the climate really is from the perspective of someone sitting at the dean's office looking at this and experiencing it. Yeah, I'm, I wanted to. There was one other aspect of this. I'm, I'm, I haven't. I have a view. At a, it's not as well developed, but it, there's something about the re response that she offers about what happens next that I think is worth just even a brief comment. So, the, if you visit the letter and read it. What she recommends is, so we've talked about, they're not gonna punish, single out particular students for, for reasons that we've talked about, but she does say that the university will have a mandatory half day session for the whole law school on the topic of freedom of speech and the norms of, le of the legal profession, which as described in that sentence, that makes sense to me. I think it would probably be helpful for the students. But then that I take that as, undercut by what comes next in this uh, same paragraph, which is that she she describes this event as inviting 
speakers, and I'm going to quote from this, speakers are representing a range of viewpoints. Needless to say, faculty and students are free to disagree with the material presented in these sessions or with the arguments I have presented in this memorandum. There will be no orthodoxy on this topic either, end quote. I was confused by that. I wasn't clear, and I don't know if she's clear about what it means to have no orthodoxy. So it can't be the case that the principle of freedom of speech or the principle of open inquiry or free debate or however you think of what she wants to foster, that you will have an event where people come and challenge that. Like, that can't be the thing that isn't treated as, it's wrong to think of it as an orthodoxy that uh, people can come along and uh, challenge. If, if the goal is to say, we have certain norms of the legal profession we want you to leave school with, and we have a certain view of the role of freedom of speech on campus, that's the baseline. That's the goal. And if, if what the event really looks like is we're going to do that, we'll have people in, in endorsing that, we'll have the administration endorsing that, but also people who are going to come along and say, no, that's wrong. What is the educational value of that? And in what sense is there... The, there's some perversion there about what orthodoxy means because it's treating a valid ideal as something that you could treat as, well, it's either orthodox or not, you're free to disagree with it. Um, I, I don't know, what did you make of that part of the, the letter? Do you, maybe I'm reading it wrong. Yeah, I, I can see that it is a little ambiguous, but I have a more charitable reading of it, which mm -hmm. is this, that a good law school, now I don't think that many law schools actually do this, but a good law school should help students think about this is what the law currently is. You need to understand to be a lawyer, to advocate in the system, to represent clients. So you need to understand the law as it actually is and why it's like this, like how it developed and so on. Um, and then if you're trying to change the law by taking particular cases and so on. You need that whole knowledge of how it's operating. But law school should also help students think about what should the law be? What is proper law? And the laws that we have, to what extent are they actually proper? Or should there be changes to these laws? And then just part of it as a citizen, but a citizen with a real interest in this, like, yeah, maybe the legislature should repeal some laws and maybe it should pass some different laws. And to think in a sophisticated way about that. And in that sense, if what this the these sessions are is to explain First Amendment law, how it applies to universities, how it applies to public universities, why there's a sense in which it applies to Stanford because partly because of the California laws. So that is... It's to present that, but there can be dissent in the interpretations of these things and different views about that. And we're, we will allow that. And there can even be um, a perspective in which you say, well, but should we even have a first amendment? And I think as a law student, you should be able to think about that. That should be debatable. One of the things to look at is other countries that don't have first amendment protection. How do they operate? And do you really think it's better? So, and to allow that kind of discussion, but it can't be, Stanford has actual policies and they're set by the administration and it can't be, this is all up for debate and, and just uh, having someone, it's up for debate in the sense they, it could be changed, but it's not debatable. These are the actual policies. 
this is how the administration thinks about them and therefore this is how they will enforce them. This is what you can do as a student. And if you're protesting, this is what's valid, that you're in the realm of, yeah, that's permissible. And, but if you do this, that you heckle so much that the person can't even speak, that's not in the realm of the per permissible. There'll be um, repercussions to that. And that like, has to be crystal clear to students, not it's all fuzzy and it's all open to debate. And so, and then they could say, well, the, someone else said I wouldn't be, um, uh, have any repercussions for this. So uh, what are you gonna do? Yeah, and, and it's a little ambiguous in regard to that, but I, I take it in the whole context of the letter and, and um, as I say, I think it's a charitable but reasonable interpretation that what's actually meant is, is yeah, we, we're not just saying just because there's a First Amendment that, that that's proper law and you can't, don't, we're not even going to allow anybody to question that. Yeah, I, I find that credible that, I mean, it's definitely something that should be open for discussion, looking at the law and thinking about how it should operate and what laws should be advocated for. But I guess I was reading it more in that other uh, interpretation of it. We have a, our campus policy and that's up for debate. And it, it can't be both we have a policy and you can come and disagree with it as a, as a speaker. That was, yeah. Um, it can't even be up for interpretation in, this, in, yeah. the, in the way that it's, yeah, well, that's your interpretation. This professor has a different interpretation of it. In the, and so the student goes with the interpretation he likes uh, or he or she likes. I mean, that, that you can't have a, a institution that operates like that. Uh, I, I think we should wrap up. We're past time, but I just want to make one comment because this is part of the analysis that has come out. And we didn't talk a lot about the, the wider context of how just the sort of the cultural commentary on the event, which would be an interesting thing to do another time. But I, I don't want to get into that topic too far, except to say one thing about the judge. I mentioned that it, none of this should be taken as we're advocates for the judge's views or we agree with him. That's not at all true. Uh, I expect I'm going to disagree with a lot of what he has to say and some of his rulings. I certainly disagree with the things I've read about him as the kind of policy positions that he's in favor of. But I did want to say something about his conduct because uh, we were talking about this before we started the conversation. I think it's important because he doesn't, I mean, in, in, in some of the interviews he's given, he doesn't come off as someone who handled this situation all that well. And you, you changed my mind a bit on this because I, I didn't think he handled it well. It's hard to know how to handle situations like this well, but he seemed to just get very flustered. But I think given what we've looked at and the way he was preached at by the, the, administrator, the administrator Steinbach and the, the whole climate, I can understand him coming off in a way that he definitely was abrasive with the students. He lost his temper. He was very sarcastic with them. And I think he's frustrated. I, I would imagine too, if you flew all the way to Stanford to give a talk, you prepared and you, you had a certain expectation, and this is what you get. I, I completely understand that. But I think it's useful to just note that situations like this are difficult to handle. And it's, it's not to endorse the way he behaved or, or the things he said about the students, some of which I think are objectionable, but I can understand why he got angry and why he was frustrated and that that's, it's a relevant part of the, the context. It doesn't, the fact that, that what's not relevant, and this is part of what I wanted to react to is the, the fact that he reacted like this does not discredit the fact that he was badly treated. It, it doesn't cancel the fact that he's badly treated. And I think the, the, the essential is he was 
this was not the right way to handle the situation fundamentally. And how he, he reacted is a detail or is a, is a subordinate feature of this, but it's not the, the argument that I, I, people have brought up is, well, he's a jerk, so what do you expect? I mean, he got what he deserved. I think that's completely backwards. I mean, it's really unfair to him, even if he is a jerk, and I don't know him, but, but that's not the point. The point is a, a campus policy was violated. It wasn't enforced by the administrator. The administrator encouraged the protesters and mayhem broke out. And it was, it was really not a, 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 this is not the way it should have gone at all, uh, irrespective of his views, irrespective of how he responded to the students uh, in this particular case. But did you want to, did you have a thought about the judge in this context? Yeah, it, it's a, it doesn't excuse, but it mitigates. And one has to think about mitigating factors. So yeah, I think he lost his cool. He was surly with the students in some ways i think of it he's acting like the, i can imagine the fed sock students were feeling like we put this event on we're students at stanford now we've got these other students have completely disrupted our event and i could imagine the argument between the students being at this level but you're a judge you're there partly in your capacity as a judge there's a certain dignity to the office that one rightly should be working to uphold and so there's something undignified about a fifth circuit judge acting like this so that's it's so it you can't excuse the behavior but it's already mitigating as you said that you've got protesters to such a degree that they're not letting you speak and they're disrupting the event that that won't put you on edge but for me the much more mitigating factor is you've got the stanford administration lecturing you and lecturing you like you're a 10 year old and you're a sitting judge on the fifth circuit and that that might not that you might not find that really galling to be lectured like that and, and in the manner and tone of part of what we played and that that might not trigger you to use some of their language that and again it's you're a sitting judge you should be able to resist that but on the other hand it is a mitigating factor about someone losing their cool it is a situation designed for someone to lose their cool. All right, I, let's draw a line here. I think there's a lot more to say about DEI, and this was a, 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 an interesting case study about how it's working its way through uh, Stanford, and presumably this is true more broadly of other uh, um, universities, and that these are the kinds of students who are entering Stanford, I think is another point that is worth noting in passing is that this is the, the cream of the crop get into Stanford and, and this is what other departments and the undergraduate schools are bringing forward. Uh, let's, let's draw a line here. We'll come back to this topic, I'm sure, as time goes on. And as we close, I want to remind people that if you're watching us on whatever platform you're on, please like the video, comment, uh, you can subscribe. We'd love to have you be part of the channel. It helps us reach more people if you do those things and uh, connect with us and share this video and tell people about it. That would be uh, welcome. And I think the other thing uh, remind everyone as well is that we welcome your feedback. We would like to hear from you if you have questions, comments about the particular episode, or if you have suggestions for future topics you'd like to uh, hear discussed. We love to hear from you. Newideal at AynRand.org. We read everything. We try to respond to many of them, and some of them do become episodes of New Ideal Live. 
I think that's all we have time for today. We'll be back next time. Thanks, Omkar. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.